Google could now be considered a product-driven company, but it wasn't always that way. For many years, Google's engineering-led culture cherished efficiency over user experience. Irene Owl arrived at a pivotal moment in the company's history and helped shape the way that Google's products clearly value design today. Now, in her role as a design partner at Coastal Ventures, she helps startups build high-performing teams, establish design practices, mentor and grow the next generation of great designers, and design interfaces and experiences. Here is her story. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites, During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. Irene Al, uh, design partner at Coastal Ventures, thanks so much for being on Design Better. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so you, you've got a pretty incredible, I'd say a storied career in our industry. You've been at Google and, and various other places um, and had a pretty big influence on the way design organizations are, are shaped. Can you just walk us through the, the journey you've been on the past 10, 15 years? Uh, sure. Actually, my career probably started earlier than that. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, my background's in human computer interaction. And then before that, in electrical and computer engineering, I started my career as an interaction designer at Netscape, working on the world's first commercial web browser and mail and news client and page editor and things like that. And then I joined Yahoo in 1998, where I brought user center design practices to Yahoo. They were kind of moving from being a web directory to a service that offered you know, web applications and services. And they really wanted to bring in this kind of skill set to make their products easy to use. And uh, so I ran Yahoo's design team for eight years, built up the user experience and design practice there. And then I joined Google in 2006, where my role was essentially the same as what I had at Yahoo, but it was just working at Google, which in many ways was like the bizarro land of Yahoo, the opposite in so many ways. And uh, in 2012, I left Google. I ended up joining Udacity and also working as an entrepreneur in residence at Trinity Ventures. And then two years after that, I joined Coastal Ventures. That was in 2014. Um, Interestingly enough, I had been talking to Coastal Ventures even back in 2012 about joining as a design partner um, and probably would have been the first of the kind in the industry there. But at the time, I just felt like uh, it wasn't the right uh, opportunity for me. Um, I still wanted to make things and be part of a company. And, um, you know, but, uh, 2014, I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm ready to do this. And I really was, 
um, eager to figure out how to bring better design to startups, whereas I had spent most of my career you know, scaling and building up large-scale consumer internet companies. Um, you know, this um, role that I have at Coastal Ventures really is an interesting way to um, teach CEOs how to build in design into their uh, companies from the ground up. So that's that's kind of how I'm spending my time now. So at Google, it's such an engineering-driven culture. Um, and when you were first there, obviously, Larry had a certain perspective about the way things should should work from a design perspective. Could you first talk about that a little bit and then talk about, you know, what changed over the years to the, to the point that he seemed to really start to evangelize design? And it's funny, like at Yahoo, when I first joined, people thought of design as um, being really about aesthetics and making things look good. And so I spent a lot of my time in the early days at Yahoo explaining to people that design was not just about how things look, but how they work. And at Google, it seems like Larry and Sergey really internalized this kind of understanding because they also had taken classes in human-computer interaction. Um, but it went to an extreme where it was really all about how things worked and not really so much about how things looked. <laughs> and one analogy that Larry had used with me was like, you know, you look at the Mac interface, for example, looks nice, easy to use, but not as efficient to use as Unix. And um, so that was kind of the vision that he had for Google was that he wanted Google to be as efficient as Unix is for power users. And that's really who we were optimizing for, at least in the early stages. Um, and uh, I think a lot of that still holds true now. Um, but the interpretation of that has kind of evolved over time. And I think with the rise of the iPhone and um, the, the success of, of this paradigm shift that the iPhone introduced, uh, which is not only beautiful um, and also functionally, uh, you know, life-changing, uh, just as a concept, it totally changed people's understanding of what a phone was. Um, I think this really started to shift um, uh, um, people's notion of like how important beauty was in an experience. Um, and so, you know, for example, like when Larry became CEO, he started to champion the importance of beauty and how that is just as important as um, having efficiency and functionality um, in an experience. Um, but, um, you know, like he, he made a comment at one all hands about white space. So, for example, whereas before we eschewed white space because we wanted to cram in as much information as possible, he pointed out that, um, you know, sometimes white space can be really valuable because it helps you better understand what to focus on. Um, and you think about, like, I think it was John Coltrane, the musician who said, like, the music is the space between the notes. Um, I think that uh, is often taken for granted um, in a lot of different ways in life. And so it was really wonderful to see Larry point that out to the rest of the company, because I mean, that was really the beginning of a shift in the attitude and, and the company's understanding of what we were really going for. Google's uh, Google's such an interesting example of evolution of the industry. I mean, you describe this Unix interface for the power user, um, which is great, you know, to be super efficient. But once you've got a much broader user base, the design philosophy or the values of a product really have to shift because it's got to work for a lot of different people with different mental models. Can you talk a little bit about that of like the, yeah. how product product values and mental models can really influence the, your approach to design? Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because Google has always really 
targeted the early adopter of technology. And the thinking was that um, the world is going in this direction. And so if you target the early adopter, eventually everybody else will come along. And this is very different from how most people think about design because, you know, at Yahoo, for example, the conventional wisdom was that we should target the widest audience possible. Um, but that really hindered innovation at Yahoo, in my opinion, um, because, you know, for example, when things like dynamic HTML came out and things like that, we were scared to embrace it because we were worried about turning away all these users who were using old browsers. Whereas at Google, the thinking was, well, we should push the envelope and force people to upgrade, you know, so that we can offer better experiences. Like why hold back people when, the, when technology is going in this direction anyway? Um, so, so that is a really interesting approach. It was very controversial too, <laughs> at least in the early days, but I think people get it now. I think people understand that. So it's, it's interesting, you know, seeing this transition at Google. Uh, and, and it sounds like when you joined Google, uh, and you're coming from an HCI background, coming from a design background, you must have felt like a fish out of water, especially coming from Yahoo, where design is, is uh, you know, on everyone's lips. And you come into a very engineering driven place where uh, the values of the company are re they're really quantitative values, not qualitative. Um, how do you how do you deliver that message in what could be a hostile environment of design is really important and design's not just about the way something looks, but it's also the way it feels. Um, it's also about how well it works for people, if it's usable and learnable and so forth. How do you deliver that message in an engineering-driven culture and start to facilitate change? You know, I have to say, when I joined Google, I actually didn't feel like a fish out of water as much as I just felt like I was coming home. I mean, actually, Google's culture in many ways was a lot like Netscape's culture and a lot like Yahoo's culture in the early days. If anything, I feel like Yahoo's culture had just evolved to a point where it was just um, impossible to move things forward. And so at Google, it was really a, a breath of fresh air because they were so focused on execution and um moving things forward, even if they're not necessarily moving forward in the right direction initially, if you keep moving, you'll eventually move in the right direction. If you keep iterating, if you keep getting feedback. And there was always a, a culture of that at Google, which I have always appreciated. Um, and I think where the rift was, was there were no visual designers in the company. Um, and there was no formative user research, no generative user research. All of it was summative. It was kind of old school Jacob Nielsen style, you know, assess the performance of the design based on, you know, usability <laughs> issues and then throw the report back over the wall to have the uh, team fix those usability issues. And I was really trying to um, change the way products were conceptualized and um, to, you know, it, it's one thing to build amazing technology, but that technology and all that analysis of the data and whatnot has to be directed towards an empathetic user experience. And so for me, I felt like the place to start was in building greater empathy for users from the beginning um, and, and do that kind of at scale. So um, I hired Charles Warren from IDEO, uh, who helped IDEO build its organization transformation practice, um, where, you know, that portion of IDEO at the time was um, working with clients to help them build in design thinking into their companies. So Charles had kind of productized this, you know, kind of design sprint 
Um, and so it's really like taking people through a design thinking process in a very methodical way that's repeatable, reproducible. And what we wanted to do was to um, turn every engineer, every product manager into a design thinker um, so that all products could be conceived with an understanding of users in mind and their needs up front rather than like, oh, what kind of cool technology can we build? And then figure out like, okay, how do we make this neat prototype look better so that we can launch it and see what happens? <laughs> um, so that was really the, the first um, place to start, um, which required formative user research, um, which sounds obvious now, but very controversial at the time um, because you know there, there was this thinking that design and research should be very separate from each other because otherwise um, you might uh, influence, you might disrupt the, destroy the integrity of the research or, in, you know, if the designers are working too closely with the researchers, which I thought, um, you know, was kind of the very opposite of where I wanted to go. <laughs> I wanted to blend the two more closely together so that they were joined at the hip and so that design, product, and engineering could all operate in a way that's informed and influenced by an understanding of, um, what people need. So, um, so that was, those were some of the early things that we tackled. So how did, you know, you're in this culture that's very performance driven and they want to see results. How do you kind of sell the whole user focused design thinking approach to people who have, um, you know, they want to see the, the data behind it? As much as people want to see data, like qualitative user research is another form of data. Um, I've heard people dispute uh, the validity of qualitative user research because it's not at scale. It's, you know, it's not large scale. It's not scientific. But qualitative user research tells you the why behind the what and is just as valuable. Um, it tells a deeper story beyond just what the numbers tell you. And, um, you know, so it's just as an example, it's like if you only look at time spent on a particular page or a feature or whatever, like you don't really know what's going on. Like, are they spending a lot of time there because it's really interesting and engaging? Or are they spending a lot of time on that page because um, they're totally confused about what to do next? Um, where So qualitative research can tell you like a deeper story around what's going on there. Um, and so, you know, whereas people might be skeptical initially, I think people are very um, easily turned and engaged when they start to see the compelling stories, um, whether that's in the form of videos um, or taking people out into the field and having them witness it themselves. Um, so, so that's kind of the approach that I've always taken is to engage stakeholders, you know, very personally uh, so that they can relate to the people that they're building for. Irene, earlier you, you were talking about OKRs, which are a really important thing at Google, uh, about accountability and and people having clarity of, of what's expected of them, um, and and that started to become a really popular thing in other companies as well. Um, how how does that fit into design culture? You know, the idea of having specific um, key results that we're supposed to achieve with design does that fit comfortably? Does is that a great way to operationalize design at scale? To to make sure everyone has clarity and accountability? OKRs are interesting, and I, I think they're a very effective tool for clarifying what a team is trying to do. Um, in, a, in an organization where you have like functional alignment, so like all the designers reporting up into a design team, and then you've got product managers, and then 
um, engineers reporting up into separate teams and they're all matrixed in. It can get really tricky because on one hand, you have the cross-functional group that's trying to deliver a product. You know, they should have OKRs that are centered around delivery. Um, but then oftentimes the functional organizations also have OKRs. And so, um, you know, it's like, how do you align those different objectives up with each other? Um, and so when, a de and when you have a decentralized organization, I think it becomes a little bit more clear. Like, so like if you are the YouTube team, the whole YouTube organization has OKRs and that applies to product engineering and design. And then it cascades from there. Uh, so then when it goes down to an individual designer and their OKRs, it's going to be really about like, what am I going to do this quarter to help the company deliver on this project? Um, so, um, you know, centralized or decentralized, I think they're really important and they only work if it's really, um, if, if people understand what the intention is, uh, you know, what is it that the company or the team or the organization is trying to do? What are they trying to accomplish? And so once that intention is clear, then the actions that people take to deliver on that, um, to, to move in that direction becomes a little bit easier to identify. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit crashplan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's crashplan.com slash design better, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. 
That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash designbetter. So team structure is a, another really important thing as, as companies start to scale. And there are lots of different ways to structure teams where, you know, you talked about these, these functional pieces that could be, you know, the YouTube team, um, which could have engineering and design separate, or they could be cross-functional. Um, a lot of times there's a, an agency model where designers are all in one team, which is uh, something that Twitter has done in the past and then decentralized. There are a lot of, a lot of different approaches. Can you talk about the advantages of, of different team models that you've seen either in your career or in the companies you're advising and when might they be most appropriate? Yeah. You know, in centralized and decentralized, there's no one right answer. It's like a pendulum that swings back and forth and kind of depends on what are you optimizing for. So um, naturally, like when you have a centralized team, that's a really great way to set in place like a shared sense of values and principles from a design perspective, uh, consistent look and feel. Um, and then from a career perspective, there's a clearer growth path for people, uh, designers and researchers are uh, more able to collaborate across the organization and to learn from each other. Uh, so there's um, a known path to follow, like they can get mentorship and there's, um, because there's more structure in the team, then there's a chance for greater leadership. Um, and so I think that kind of organizational model uh, really suits um, growing companies very well, uh, particularly with startups, you know, because you know, the company's just not that big, so you might as well have all the designers hang out with each other. And you can get some economies of scale in that way, too, because they can kind of reuse work and um, not reinvent the wheel because, you know, since they're working more closely with each other, they can share ideas. They can um, collaborate. And if to the extent that they have different skills that play off of each other, um, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And maybe what they produce collectively is better than what any of them can do individually. Um, but as a company grows, it starts to become unsustainable to have like massive centralized teams. Uh, people start to complain about their sense of lack of accountability or how inefficiently things get done because you have to work through so many different layers of management. Um, and so usually decentralization happens out of this perceived need for better control or better efficiency or better accountability, all of which can be very valid reasons. Um, and what I've seen both at Yahoo and at Google is that when the teams decentralize um, and the general managers or the, the executives in charge of those particular product areas are now responsible for design, it usually leads to a greater investment in design because they're not able to benefit from the efficiencies that were previously held by a centralized team. So then you end up getting more designers hired, but there's also greater duplication of effort maybe um, a little bit more reinventing of the wheel. 
Um, and that's the cost, but the benefit is that people perceive that they can move more quickly because they're in control of their own resources. How about, how about going over to the design review process? What do you think, um, some key elements of a, of a good design review process are and who should be involved? Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, when we spoke to Stanley Wood, he mentioned kind of multiple layers of review, usability or Mm -hmm. style guide. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's helpful to also recognize first, like, where do design review processes go wrong <laughs> first? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because we've seen a lot of um, um, failed cases where um, teams go in like right before launch and they just want the approval <laughs> so that they can go launch. And then everything turns upside down because once they go into the committee to that reviews, it's like, wait a minute, this concept is completely unfounded or oh my gosh, you mean that you've um, replicated all of the photos six times over on a user's hard drive just to create this experience? Like I actually sat through a review with Yahoo Photos one time where that happened. Um, And so I think it's really important to have uh, uh, reviews through multiple phases of a product development's life cycle, Um, starting from strategy and concept to um, how is this thing going to be architected to um, how do you move people through the experience um, and, you know, all the way down to the tactics around, like, how do people perform specific tasks and get things done? Um, what does the interface look like? Um, how does it relate to, um, you know, company style or brand or things like that? And then making sure that the right kinds of questions are answered in the right uh, stages of review. So, um even going so far as to offer templates for people to say, okay, these are the questions that we're going to be asking. <laughs> this is kind of the level of understanding that we're looking for. You know, so maybe in the early stages, it's going to be like, who's the target user? Um, what are their goals? What are they trying to accomplish? Um, what are you trying to get them to do? How does this fit in with our overall company strategy? Uh, and then maybe in the later stages of review, it's going to be things like, okay, what does the UI framework look like? And does it adhere to the grid structure that we have created as a standard for the company? So I was recently at a, at a conference where we had somebody from uh, Search Inside Yourself. And he, he mentioned this um, really interesting project, Aristotle. Was, did that happen when you were at Google? I'm not familiar with that. So they did a bunch of research on Teams. And you know, in a very googly way, they used a bunch of data and determined that the number one performance indicator was establishing trust in the team. And so I'm curious, how in these types of reviews, how, how do you establish trust and how do you make people feel safe so that, that all perspectives are, are welcome? Well, I, first of all, I think it's important to distinguish between a review versus a brainstorm and like, or like a design sprint, you know, because in those um, meetings, especially you want to have um, you want people to feel safe because they're generating ideas and you want people to come up with really crazy ideas. Whereas like when you're on a tail end of a review right before launch, um, you know, the, the objective is a little bit different. Um, at the same time, you want to have um, constructive criticism at any phase and stage and some creative conflict. Um, so that means that, you know, if people like, if people feel too safe, maybe they don't, feel like they, maybe they're not motivated to deliver and push themselves. On the other hand, if there's too much tension, then maybe people don't feel like they can come up with interesting and new ideas. Um, So like in the earlier stages, when we're generating a lot of ideas, 
we will explicitly say like, this is a period when we are just going to come up. The objective is to come up with as many ideas as possible. And we are not judging the ideas now. We're not judging you personally, and we're not judging the ideas. And it's really important that whoever is facilitating the meeting is really on the ball when it comes to this, because inevitably somebody will blurt out like, oh, I think that's a terrible idea <laughs> when somebody comes up with something crazy. And it's really important for the facilitator to kind of, you know, corral that back in and say, you know, thanks for sharing your opinion, but this is not the time and place to do that. We're going to be um, sharing our judgments later during this other review period or this other phase of the design sprint or whatever. Um, so it's really important for the facilitator to hold the space, uh, in an appropriate way. Um, we'll also like during brainstorming phases, um, be as encouraging as possible. So not only to withhold judgment, but also to build off of people's ideas. So to never say no to anything that comes up, but to say yes. And, you know, that's like a classic improv kind of principle. Um, so that you're saying, yeah, that's a great idea. And what if we also did blah, 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 so that you're building off of each other's ideas and not shooting anybody down. Um, and again, that's very important in the formative stages and the brainstorming stages. And then later when we're editing and we're trying to figure out like, you know, how do we converge down to the two or three ideas that we'll actually pursue and try, um, then that's the time to kind of be more critical and to say, well, this one has its pros and cons because of these reasons. This one has its pros and cons because of these reasons. And I think it's also really, really important to lay those out very clearly. Pros and cons of option A, pros and cons of option B, C, et cetera, so that people can make informed decisions uh, in a balanced way. Irene, you, you've probably hired a lot of people over the years and looked at a lot of different skill sets, a lot of different resumes. But to what extent is EQ and soft skills, how important are they to being able to build really great products? Oh, extremely important and often overlooked more so than they deserve. Um, in my experience, EQ has really determined whether somebody is an okay designer to some, whether somebody is a really great designer. Because um, a lot of times it comes down to how present can they really be when they're collaborating with others and when they're making, um, how empathetic can they be with um, not only the people that they're designing for, but also with other stakeholders to be able to understand other perspectives so they can negotiate and communicate with them effectively. Um, and, uh, you know, there's also the importance of being able to receive feedback and to reflect on oneself to see, like, how can I be better and how can I make this thing that I'm creating be better? And so, like, if you have a lack of self-awareness or an unwillingness to look at yourself, um, that's going to be career limiting in the long run. So I spend just as much time interviewing people for, you know, their EQ as much as I do for their IQ and for their hard skills. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, every time I've interviewed that I spend so much time just hanging out with, uh, with candidates because uh, it's, it's the only way to really get a feel for soft skills and EQ and background and um, if there's a deficiency in, in skill set, that's usually something I can coach up, but I can't change a person's, you know, background, personality, the way they communicate and process emotion. Uh, that's all on them. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And um, I've developed some specific questions in interviews just to be able to try to assess their self-awareness, self-reflection, social awareness you know, um, because those are so important. Like how well do they 
manage difficult situations? How well do they negotiate with other um, stakeholders when there's a conflict that arises? Um, do they ever think about like, how would I make this better? And what, what exactly would that look like if they had more time? How would they improve the product? Um, so those are all indicators that kind of uh, reflect on, you know, on their EQ. It's wonderful. So, you know, you, you see a lot of companies, you, you a lot of companies um, in your current uh, role at Kosla. Uh, what are what are some uh, what are of the companies you're seeing that are really embracing design and doing amazing things? Um, so Kosla Ventures is really interesting because Vinod really loves design and cares about design. So we've invested in um, some companies like Square, for example, that like really gets design up front, um, you know, but uh, we also have companies in our portfolio that um, may not be well-known consumer brands, but are amazing design-focused companies. And Nutanix is one of the companies that I'm most excited about um, because the CEO, Dearash Pandey, really understands that in order for that company to be successful, uh, and they build they build like data center infrastructure, like hardware and software. <laughs> and so it's like one of the last companies you would think like really needs good design. But actually, that insight is like they're so um, design focused, not necessarily not just on how it looks, but like, why are they building what they're building? Um, so they recognized that um, uh, they could automate more. They could create a single interface through which all these different components of data centers could be managed. Um, and so before they build anything, they ask themselves, what is the fundamental problem that we're solving? Like, why are we building this? And so it imposes a, a really important critical period of reflection uh, around like, well, is this really the best possible solution that we could build? Or is there some more elegant solution that we can arrive at that makes things even easier for people? Um, there's another company. We have a lot of entrepreneurs that are brilliant uh, technologists and know nothing about design. And yet they are so eager to... Um, absorb everything that I might have to offer. Like I had one CEO come to me and say, teach me everything you know about design. <laughs> and this startup is building, they're, they're applying machine learning and artificial intelligence towards network security. Uh, so it's like another domain where it's like, you wouldn't really think that design has a huge role in this, um, but he's so eager. And in this is one case where the best impact that design can have, it really is in instilling a culture of design thinking into the company so that they're focusing on on the, on the customers first. So I taught him how to do field studies. We went and talked to uh, target customers that we had identified and uh, tried to understand like from a chief information security officer's perspective, like what does their daily life look like and what are their pain points? And that all of that kind of fed into a design sprint that I led with them, which really resulted in a conceptualization of like, okay, well, these are the possible things that we could do as we direct our technology towards solving these problems. Um, so these are just a few examples of, of how um, I've been working with startups in our portfolio. It's a full range, you know, so sometimes the CEO gets it like Jack Dorsey and I, you know, they, they build in design from the, you know, from day one. And there's a huge focus, not only on design thinking, but also on the aesthetics uh, and that full range everywhere in between. And then we also get small startups that are founded by technologists that know nothing about design, um, but are really eager to see how they can make their companies successful um, through design. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing all these stories. And, and we really, really appreciate having you on the show, Irene. Sure. Thank you for having me. <laughs>